Hello there, everybody, and welcome to uh, this episode of Tipsy Tales, uh, episode number 26. Um, I'm your host, Alma, and I'm here with... Mario, her son. And I'm not only sober, but um, I was going to be solo as well, but uh, Mario dropped in right now and saved me from hearing the sound of my own voice. <laughs> that I'm here for. Yeah. Um, thank you, Mario. No problem. For indulging me. Yeah. All right, I recorded a whole episode on my own, and um, I didn't know how I felt about that. So anyways, Mario's here to save my life. Thank you, son. Yep, no problem. Uh, you guys have been in the process of moving into your uh, new home, finally. Yeah, pretty much all moved in. Um, everything outside that you can see is all squared away. It's our rooms that need to be done. Me right. and Isaiah. You guys need to unpack those boxes and all that stuff. Yeah, he hasn't even swept anything. The The parquet flooring in his room, there's still like all, all sorts of plaster and whatnot on it. So, I think you guys are just happy to be in there, right? Yeah, it's been like when we get home, we'll work on stuff here and there, all the little touch-ups. We've actually got a whiteboard, and we set it up in the kitchen by the front door or the back door. And we just put a list of all the things that we want to get done. And like little by little, we're checking them off, you know, day at a time. Then we keep adding something else. And then, uh, you know, I think our rooms to us took kind of the back back burner. Right. So we're just trying to get it presentable, I guess you could say, before we actually really get comfortable. Well, just glad that you guys are in your house and not just because um, it calmed things down around here. But yeah. just, you know, I know you guys were super frustrated. Yeah, I know Isaiah is definitely happier. You guys had a shitty contractor, mm-hmm. unfortunately, but three months later, here you are. Mm-hmm. You guys are in your house and happy. Couldn't be happier. All right. <laughs> How was work today? Uh, it was all right. It was um kind of busy. I mean, I, I just work with jackasses all day. You know, that's the norm wherever you go. Do, do you want that recorded on the podcast in case anybody ever listens to this? Oh, well, I don't know. Is not going to listen to this and be like, oh my God, my grandson is cursing. Oh, no, I'm talking about your coworkers. Oh, well, no, I don't care if they listen either. <laughs> I told those people I don't like them. So, yeah, it's all right. They're they already know anything. it's out there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we've all worked with jackasses before. So, Mario doesn't have a story today, but I do. Um, a few weeks ago, we did uh, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. And I kind of wanted to go on that same vein, you know, once a month doing something about a missing person or a cold case and as you guys all know um Yvette has stepped back from doing the podcast and for those of you who are starting with this ep- episode um on last week's episode we announced that um Yvette would be stepping back from the podcast um because she had some health concerns and she's had a bunch of doctor visits and not to put too fine a point on it it's it's serious but it's not super serious it's not grave but it's enough where, you know, she needs to step back in and take some time for herself. So let's all wish her well and hopefully everything, you know, turns out okay. We love you, Yvette. We do. We love her to death. Not to death. <laughs> <laughs> we love you. <laughs> the morbidity, Mom. Okay. So anyways, I just wanted to um, give some updates um, regarding that last episode that we did on missing and murdered indigenous women. Um, I was hoping to have an update on Savannah's act, but it's kind of just sitting there. Um, Nothing's really happening with it yet. So as things progress, I will let you guys know what's going on. Um, And also, 
I do have some news for you. Um, my home state of Arizona, last Thursday, March 7th, the Arizona House of Representatives gave preliminary approval to HB 2570. Um, that bill's sponsor is Representative Jennifer Germain. If this bill is passed, Arizona would be one of the first states to create a task force that would collect data and track trends among cases of missing and murdered indigenous women in our state. Oh, nice. Yeah. So I don't know if you listened to that episode, kiddo. Um, I certainly don't expect you to, especially with the busy couple of months that you've had. But yes, um, that's that's a big step forward, especially um, in our state as well. Um, and in South Dakota, there's a Senate Bill 164 co-sponsored by Representative Tamara St. John that would direct state authorities to prepare guidelines for reporting and investigating cases of missing and murdered indigenous women. Um, the bill would also mandate training programs for law enforcement on how to conduct investigations. And Representative St. John says South Dakota legislation is critical because of a combination of factors, one being the Interstate 90 corridor, the state's multiple reservations, and so-called man camps around pi- pipeline constructions, often on or near reservations. So that's a huge issue in South Dakota, North Dakota. So big ups to South Dakota and Arizona for those pieces of legislations and um if any of you guys uh, want to follow that or also call your representatives, I've given their names, um, give them a call and push it along. Um, and I'll keep you guys updated as those bills progress as well. So um, for today's case, like I said, Mario doesn't have a case. He kind of just uh, got sucked in today. Um, today, I wanted to bring it a little closer to home and discuss the disappearance of Mikhail Biggs. Do you recall this case at all? No, I don't. Okay. This is one that I've kind of been following over the years only because it literally happened the same year Serena was born. Um, actually, the same month. Oh, okay. So, you know, you guys were both toddlers, and I was heavily pregnant with Serena at the time. At, at the time, this was telegraphing over all the news stations. So, um, honestly, for me, and maybe for those of you out there that are parents... Who've ever experienced losing track of your child, even for a few minutes, this is one of those stories that confirms your worst fears. That there are monsters out there, not the kind that hide under your bed, but real monsters that prey on children and look for that perfect moment when no one is watching. And in this case, it was less than two minutes. Wow. It was 90 seconds. It was January 2nd, 1999, a nice Saturday afternoon in Mesa, Arizona. So nice that 11-year-old Mikael Biggs and her younger sister Kimber, who was nine at the time, were out playing in front of their house when they thought they heard a familiar sound, that of an ice cream truck. Um, and you, being a kid, you know what that means when you hear the ice cream truck. What's the first thing you guys do? Oh, yeah. We ran. We grabbed our chains. We ran out there as fast as we could, you know? It was just <laughs> a normal thing for us. Exactly. Um, and that's what these girls did. They asked their mom for money, and they went out to wait for the truck. Mm-hmm. Both Mikhail and Kimber waited for the ice cream man near Toltec and El Moro Avenue in Mesa at approximately 5.50 p.m. Kimber was cold, and she decides that she's going to go back inside. She tells her mom she doesn't think that the ice cream man was coming, so her mom says, it's close to dinner, go get your sister, basically. You know, it's dusk, the lights, the street lights are starting to come on. And the last thing um, Kimber remembers is uh, her sister was riding her bike, and doing big circles in the street. Yeah. A typical evening in a neighborhood with lots of kids. Yeah. 
She goes out. She doesn't see her sister. She starts calling for her with no answer. Mikkel had been riding Kimber's bicycle, and Kimber spotted it lying on its side, partially back towards their house, um, with its back, back wheel still spinning. So, I mean, it literally it just ha- happened. Yeah. And based on the evidence, the police would later determine, um, based on these things, like the change just thrown on the ground, they found the quarters. Oh, okay. Just tossed on the sidewalk. They would determine that, you know, she was trying to get away from somebody. Um, The last time Kimber saw her, she was riding that bike, like I just said, doing the big circles in the street. After determining that Mikkel was not at a nearby friend's house, her mom called the police. In fact, the whole neighborhood came together and mobilized in search of Mikkel. Authorities searched the entire area near Mikkel's family home, but no evidence pertaining to her whereabouts was found. Search dogs lost her scent after only a few feet suggesting she was placed into a vehicle and driven away. And um, the police jumped on this right away because it was pretty obvious at that point that she'd been abducted. Mm -hmm. Authorities were unable to confirm if an ice cream truck was in the area at the time of her disappearance, but all ice cream vendors in that area were cleared of involvement in Mikkel's case. And interestingly enough, um, as I was listening to a few podcasts and reading about this, Ice cream trucks became a rarity in that area after this happened. Oh, okay. So I don't know if it was re- in response to that, but it's it's kind of a sad, sad after effect. It's I mean, there's a joy that it brings to you know when you're a kid and you hear the ice cream truck coming, but then uh, all of a sudden because of that one thing that happened, that's taken away. Right. But it's understandable, you know, because yeah. at the same time, you never know. Yeah, it's pretty scary. What was your favorite thing to get from the ice cream man? Ooh, uh, big Mississippi fudge. Oh, yeah, that was always my favorite. Mine's always an ice cream sandwich. That's vanilla. Simple. It's super easy. Super easy. My favorite. Um, and it, and it sounds like from um what I've heard, you know, her sister say on some of these, uh, interviews that her Mikkel's was something with a gumdrop in the middle. Ooh, uh, is it the one with the like? The eyeballs or it's a face, you know, like Batman or I like have no idea, Tweety but Bird. That, that's what she remembered, that that was her favorite. Oh, okay. Houses in the neighborhood were searched with the consent of their owners, but to no avail. Um, there was only one homeowner that refused to permit a search, and he wasn't considered a suspect. He was ruled out, I guess, at some point. And for days after, hundreds of volunteers would help in the search, combing the nearby areas and the nearby desert, because we're, you know, surrounded by desert. Yeah. It just so happened that the day Mikkel disappeared was the day after New Year's. So this was a Saturday. Uh, New Year's was a Friday. So, you know, New Year's Eve, everybody's like partying, having a good time. And so here they are Saturday and they're out there playing. So it was probably a pretty subdued day. Like, you know, parents are probably just sleeping off their New Year's Eve. Yeah. And there had also been a huge playoff game. um, One of the first that the Cardinals had been in at that time. So, I'm sure it was a, a pretty raucous New Year's. Oh, yeah. Um, so, a little bit about Mikkel. She was 11 years old, um, the oldest of Darian and Tracy Biggs, four children, born May 31st, 1987. So, I'm, I'm trying to think, like, how old you would have been. In 1999, you were probably about, like, three? Uh, well, yeah, you were, because you were 96. Yeah. yeah. You were about three years old at this time. Mikkel was... A sixth grade honor student at Lindbergh Elementary, where she was a member of the student council, and she also played the clarinet. She was very artistic, enjoyed drawing. You know, she um, 
was very personable. Uh, she hoped to become a Disney animator someday. And I was, as I was watching some of these videos and stuff, you know, they were like doing flash pictures of her, the drawings that she drew. And she was, you know, for an 11 year old, she was, pretty you good. know, pretty, pretty good. Yeah. Mikkel's favorite color was purple. And she had, like I said, two younger sisters and one younger brother. In fact, Mikkel was wearing a red t-shirt with the name of her elementary school name on there printed in front, Lindbergh along with a pair of bell-bottom jeans with embroidered seams on the sides and white canvas shoes. Uh, the case was hampered from the start with little and concrete evidence to go on. On January 9th, police dug up what appeared to be a freshly dug grave outside of Mesa. They found nothing. And I think, um, from what I remember, that that was on the, based on the tip of a psychic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they got thousands of tips. Yeah. And some of them were from psychics. And, you know, they didn't let any of these tips go uncovered. Yeah. So, like, you know, like I said, they found nothing. Two witnesses were put under hypnosis in hopes that they would remember something. But nothing came of that. And... Is that is that still a tactic? Do they use that still? Yeah, they still do. Really? Yeah. That's pretty actually... That's a little creepy. But at the same time, pretty cool. Yeah. Um, they found nothing to, and, uh, there was also a copper colored Jeep that was reported, st- uh, spotted near Mikkel's home at the time she was last seen. But when its driver was located, he was ruled out as a suspect and he had seen nothing unusual. Houses in the neighborhood were searched with the consent of their owners, but to no avail. On March 10th, 1999, a man reportedly tried to abduct two girls, a 10 year old and an 11 year old. Um, from a schoolyard and police thought the incident might have been connected to Mikhail's case but the abduction quote-unquote was revealed to be a hoax so and they would run into stuff like this over and over again yeah Uh, they had no solid leads also as in is in the case of many abductions um, most abductors are family members or somebody close to the family Um, the police questioned and focused on Mikhail's father for the period of about a, a year or so and subjected him to polygraphs and psychological testing um, just trying to determine um, whether he had any tendencies towards being a pedophile yeah at the end of all of this ultimately they cleared him of suspicion um, police immediately ran a check on all the registered sex offenders in the area and they were dis- surprised to discover that there were dozens of sex offenders living within a mile radius of the Biggs house in a child-filled neighborhood, one of these offenders was D. Blaylock. He had a former convictions in three states. So, that's crazy. Yeah. So many sex offenders in such a small area that's... Just, and then not even realizing it. Yeah, and like, it. this is before, you know, they were required by law to report it to, you know, make it known. Because now you can go online and... um basically search sex offenders and you'll know but before they weren't required to put that out there yeah in the neighborhood so now it is back then it wasn't that's pretty scary so like i said d blaylock he had former convictions in three states he was a part-time landscaper and handyman he lived across makes it useful when he needs to go around and spy on people yeah and keep tracks yeah and then he lived across the street from where mikhail took piano lessons and a few doors from the home of Mikhail's best friend. And he would later, you know, basically um, say to someone 
that he had seen her before. Yeah. He remembered seeing her before. During the small window of time that police believe Mikhail was abducted, Blaylock had allegedly been watching a football game on TV in his garage. Um, his wife backed up the story, and when he let police inside his home, they found nothing. And I'm just going to say that he did have a trailer parked on his property that when the police, you know, went to question him, they didn't have a search warrant, and so they couldn't search it at the time. So it's... Con- so when they have a search warrant for your house and you have a trailer, it's considered a separate piece of property? Um, that's what I'm guessing. Okay. So when they come back with the search warrant, it's gone. Yeah. Convenient. Yeah. And then also um, he had access to a storage facility not that far away where, you know, whoever was managing the storage facility would let him use any op- open storage facility whenever he came or went so when the police actually you know went to search the storage facility not only was the trailer not there there was no record of what um storage he had been in use for him yeah you know, by the time they anyone. got around to doing that yeah so you know if there was any traces of Mikkel, he pretty he cleaned up pretty well yeah and they didn't have any idea which storage facility to open you know yeah so yeah that's that was yeah not a good thing he was looked at that night, but he had an alibi, said Jerry Gazelle, a retired detective with Mesa Police who worked on the case. There wasn't a whole lot we could do. A year later, however, the investigation returned to Blaylock with laser focus after he was accused and convicted for a sexual assault um, and beating on the Biggs neighbor who told Mikkel's mom afterwards that Tracy Biggs that in that her intuition led her to believe that Blaylock had abducted her daughter um the detectives questioned his alibi again and it started to crack under scrutiny and Blaylock's wife who was super submissive to him um said Gazelle said to Gazelle with Blaylock locked up his wife revealed to police that she behaved as her husband dictated and then after she delivered sandwiches to him in the garage that day Mikkel the same night that Mikkel vanished, he told his wife to stay away, and thus he couldn't actually she couldn't actually account for her husband's whereabouts during the hour when Mikkel was taken. That's kind of weird. Yeah, he's like, I need you to stay away so I can do some shit. That yeah, you're that's not weird. Know. Like, you know, if your dad told me to stay out of the garage, you'd want to be like, well, why the fuck? Why? Yeah. yeah, like I'd be immediately suspicious. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Right there, one. Coupled with Blaylock's criminal past, which included three prior convictions for sexual assault, kidnapping, and child molestation, um, that new uncertainty in his timeline suddenly made Blaylock's, Blaylock a prime suspect in Mikkel's abduction and her presumed murder, according to investigators. So at this time, you know, they're presuming that she's not alive. Yeah. About that attack on the, neighbors, on the neighbor, Susan Quinette, it was brutal. It was nearly two years after Mikkel had vanished when Dee Blaylock was convicted of raping and brutally attacking Quinette. In her words, she said prior to the attack that he had been stalking her and she had complained to the police and they hadn't done anything about it. He was coming up on me. He was drunk. He reeked of beer. She said he was putting his hands on me in my yard. I called the police. I said the guy is just creeping me out. He's stalking me. I've tried to tell his wife um, and nobody followed up on that. On the night of the attack, he was waiting for her inside her home. He was hiding behind the refrigerator and had his pants unzipped and he was exposing himself. So, uh, just 
that keeping could, this factor to the max like you're breaking the meter here just yeah. ah there's so many things wrong walking into your house and this guy's been stalking you he's already been giving you the heebie-jeebies and then you find him in your house which is your sanctuary hiding behind your refrigerator like completely like exposing himself that's just like unbelievable to me Quinette said she was shocked and asked him what he was doing there of course I tried to take a few steps and he already had come forward and grabbed me and twisted my arm and started forcing me to the ground Mesa police described Blaylock's attack on Quinette as brutal and I think that's an understatement because I saw some of the pictures and he like basically beat her within an inch of her life. Um, in her words, he tried to snap my neck three times, said Quinette. He did successfully break it in one place. He put me in a chokehold. He choked me until I gave over and fainted. One of the worst beatings I've ever seen, said Detective uh, Jerry Gazelle. And to cover up his crime, he threw a few cardboard boxes on top of her stove and tried to burn the house down. So he was thoroughly willing to, like, commit murder to cover up his tracks. Yeah. So there's that. Um, thankfully, Quinette survived the attack. She said she immediately suspected Blaylock might also be responsible for Mikhail's disappearance and contacted the Biggs to tell them about her suspicions. The Biggs had never heard of Blaylock, but they soon learned that police had visited him in the early morning after Mikhail disappeared. Police said Blaylock's wife provided the alibi for Blaylock, claiming he had been in the garage the entire night, which we now know not to be the case. Um, the Biggs has decided only, the only way to find out more answers was to deal with Blaylock directly. You know, it goes straight to the source. Yeah. At this point, does he even suspect that anyone's after him, or does he just think he's got away? Well, I mean, yeah, I'm sure the police at this point have, like, you know, questioned him because, you know, he was questioned in the beginning. And now, you know, it's it's out there that he's this person that he is. Creepy piece of shit. Yeah. After the Bla- after Blaylock was sentenced for this attack, his attack on Quinette, the big sent him a letter in prison asking him directly if he had taken their daughter. I told him, if I'm wrong, I won't be able to do enough to apologize to you, said Darian Biggs, because that's a terrible thing to be accused of. But I don't care. If I have to accuse a million different people until I find the right one, so be it. Blaylock answered in writing that I need to make things right with you and your family. So what does that sound like to you, that he has something to confess? It sounds almost like, you know, like he's holding this secret. Yeah. The Biggs spoke to Blaylock in prison for an hour and a half. When they finally did get to go talk to him. And according to Darian Biggs, he just denied, denied, denied. He got mad a couple of times, but he never walked away. Um, as we were walking away, I remember telling Darian um, that I think he did it. Recalled Tracy Biggs. His movements, his jitteriness. He couldn't look you straight in the eye. Just things that wouldn't, would indicate that he was lying. So, that, you know, like that deep down, that suspicion that they had, like they felt like, you know, that visit with him confirmed it. Yeah. But at the same time, those are all kind of symptoms of a liar. Yeah. Not being much. able to look you in the eye and stuttering. Um, I don't know if I mentioned that um, his criminal past included three prior convictions for sexual assault, kidnapping, and child molestation. Did I? Did I mention that? I can't remember. I don't remember. think so. No, if I so, don't believe. Yeah, there's that. So like I said, they walk away, you know, pretty much with that certainty in their hearts that this is the guy yeah. he did it for Darian Biggs the full impact of the encounter did not hit home until the next day he was sitting three feet away from this guy he said you know the only thing protecting him was that 
you know, glass between us. Can you imagine being the dad and, and like just having this gut feeling that this is the guy who kidnapped and most likely murdered his daughter? Yeah. The, the pure rage. rage that he would be feeling just sitting there staring him in the face. Exactly. That's I can't even imagine. Um, then there was a break in the case last year. Yeah, last year in March, a dollar bill was reported to police in uh, Nina, Wisconsin. That's, I guess, nine miles southeast of Appleton. But, you know, I don't I've never been to Wisconsin, so I don't even know where Appleton is either. <laughs> uh, along the edges of the 2009 bill, the words, my name is Mikkel Biggs, kidnapped from Mesa, Arizona. I'm alive. Holy shit. Yeah. But incidentally, Mikkel's name is spelled incorrectly on that dollar bill. It's spelled M-I-K-E-L. Um, and her name is spelled M-I-K-E-L-L-E. Could it be her just not having... Like, she was young when she was abducted. She was 11. Right? Yeah. I mean, still old enough to know how to spell your name. So by this... So 11. So this would be like about 10 years later. Like if it... it okay, not 10 years later, but it's a 2009 bill. Yeah. So 2009 is about 10 years after she disappeared. Mm -hmm. So by this time, she'd be 21. I couldn't, well, I mean, I would imagine that uh, not writing her name all the time and then, you know, probably, I'm guessing, you know, and uh, not really uh, just practicing. Right. Maybe wherever she was locked up, you know, she's not able to practice it. Yeah. She kind of just maybe misspelled it. I don't know. It seemed like a break in the case, but the family says that this is in her handwriting. Mm -hmm. And the fact that she misspelled it incorrectly and the fact that it's it looks like a child's handwriting. And then the fact that it would being a two thousand and nine dollar bill, it would have been she would have been twenty one years old, yeah. you know, with this ch child's crappy handwriting still. So I think they pretty much determine it to be a hoax. OK, so there's that of this, her sister. Um, Kimber, she says, it's a horrible thing. I don't appreciate that someone felt the need to do that. But instead of being angry and hating um, them, I said, hey, thanks. You gave my sister more attention. You brought her back into the spotlight. Yeah. And also, you know, in this past year, like as of um, the 2nd of January of this year, that's 20 years. It's been 20 years since um, she was abducted. So there's been quite a few podcasts out there. There's, you know, been some specials out there. Uh, a, a few articles that have been written. So that's bringing this case back into the spotlight. And, and this case has never been closed. Mm -hmm. um, through all of this, Mikkel's parents have found their way forward through, uh, through their grief. And on the, fifth of on the fifth anniversary of their daughter's abduction, they held a funeral, symbolically burying an empty casket. So this was like five years later. Her mother, Tracy, in an interview with People Magazine, she said... It was we felt needed as a way of having closure or a way of being able to say goodbye to some sort of degree in order to move on with in order to move on. I was grateful that we did it. So I can kind of understand that. Yeah. And I, I was actually like reading on some of the online articles and stuff like there was some backlash to or the fact that they the did this really? without a body or anything like they need some sense of closure, though. I mean, there's only. Even as a family member, like if you went missing, if I went missing, you can only hold on to hope for so long before you have to accept reality. Right. That's... And you don't have to answer to anybody in which way you deal with your grief. Yeah. That's my thing. Like everybody deals with grief differently. You shouldn't have to 
answer to people that are like, oh, well, you should deal with it in this way. And this is the only way to deal with it. That 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 drives me fucking crazy. They needed a sense of closure and they got it for themselves. Exactly. And I'm happy that they did. Her sister, Camber, found her own comfort several years later after observing her then months old son, Traven, uh, encountered a photograph of her sister for the first time at her mother's home. She said he started just started sta- laughing and smiling at it for no reason. She says, recalling that moment gave her goosebumps. It made me think that he knew her like she was his guardian angel. Um, Kimber also maintains a Facebook page called Justice for Mikhail Biggs, which also brings her comfort. And as of January 2nd this year, like I said, it's been officially 20 years. Due to this, her case still remains open and has been back in the spotlight. And there has been quite a few recent articles and podcasts out there highlighting the case. Even though Dee Blaylock has never been convicted, her family feels very strongly that he is Mikkel's kidnapper and still remains a person of interest to the police. Although they haven't had anything substantial to, you know, lay this crime on him. Yeah. Through all of this, the family remains hopeful that there will be a break in the case and new information will help them resolve this once and for all. If you have any information regarding this case, please contact Mesa Police Department at 480-644-2211. And I'm going to say that again, 480-644-2211. And that's pretty much that case in a nutshell. What do you think of that? I mean, I don't even know what to say because, I mean, just watching those, uh, like, true crime shows, you know, like, that kind of stuff, then bringing it into reality and then hearing the kind of stuff that goes on. It's just so crazy to me that that kind of stuff, those kind of people, it can exist within a block, right, and be your neighbor. Right. Right next to you, you know, and it's become so bad sometimes that, you know, especially now people are so scared of other people. Right. Uh, not knowing, even if they're the friendliest people, it kind of makes people paranoid in, in almost every aspect of life and that they don't know who they can trust. If someone's smiling in their face and being a completely different person whenever they're alone. Right. Yeah. And the fact that it was like 90 seconds that it happened, that she walked over to the bike and this wheel was still spinning. Yeah. Like it just happened that fast. I can't even, I mean, I just think about all the times that you guys were just playing out in front of the house. Yeah, you, I mean, you guys, you guys were working. you guys always had each other, you know? Yeah. And her mom probably assumed, because there's the two of them out there, and, like, it was literally this short span of time in between one being with the other. Like, yeah. that's the last thing you would think that would happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's definitely one of those cases that gives you pause, and there's a lot of them out there, a lot of them. It's just sad that there's so many twisted people out there. Oh, yeah. It's like you just, people got to pay attention. If you see something, you need to say something. Oh, yeah. I Any told, little thing helps. I told you, your uh, Tia Happy and I almost got kidnapped when we were. I don't think I've ever heard this story. I've never told you this story. I think no. I've already told this story on this podcast before when me and Yvette were talking. But it was basically, I, th- I think it was summertime. And your dad was taking uh, violin lessons, and I had to walk her to school because, of course, she couldn't walk by herself. I think she was, like, in fifth grade, and I was probably, like, in sixth grade. And it was a few blocks away, more than a few blocks away. It was in Canto. And on our way back, this guy, there was this church. So we're, like, right on Indian School. We're walking on the main road, you know, on the sidewalk on the main road, busy street. And this guy kind of, like 
cuts us off. Like there's this church right there between 15th Avenue and 19th Avenue. Um, it's, I don't know if it's a church anymore, but, and then he pulls around in the parking lot and he comes back out and he's facing towards the street at this point, like kind of like, like he's going to pull out of the parking lot. And he asks us both if, you know, we could locate Dunlap on a map. Yeah. And I said, no. And he pulls out the map anyways. And he like, like kind of like holds it out and he, and he says, well, just look at the map and see if you can show me where it is. And Thea starts walking towards the car and I kind of like put my arm in front of her and I said, we don't know. And so he takes off, he yeah. drives off. And I, I remember this vividly that it was a red Thunderbird. I don't know what uh, year it was. I just, cause we had a Thunderbird um, during that time. So I knew it was a red Thunderbird. So he takes off. And I don't know what was in our minds, but we start walking towards the alley. So we cut across the church parking lot. We start walking towards the alley that's right behind it. And that's it's not even a shortcut, so I don't even know what we were thinking. We walk to the alley, and he's at the end of that alley. Oh, you know what? I think we spotted him at the end of the street, at the end of that block, and he was kind of waiting there. So you so guys decided we, to take yeah, the alley? Yeah, so we start walking towards the alley, and he's at the end of the alley yeah just red thunderbird so we walk back towards the church parking lot cut across it and we're back on the busy road and we're walking down the street and he's just at the end of that street right there where the stop sign is and um i think it was a block watch house i'm pretty sure it was a block watch house we like i was like you know pretend like we live here act like nothing just don't even look at him or anything and it was literally on the corner where he was parked. Yeah. And we walk up the driveway, we go and we knock on the door and he's still there. And the guy answers the door and he kind of takes off. And so we tell this guy, you know, what we're experiencing. We're kind of freaked out. We're both talking at the same time. And he's kind of breathless. So I don't know what he was doing. But he says, hold on right here. He goes and gets a phone and he brings it down the hallway and he's like, call, call your mom. So we call Nana and she, he walks us halfway, you know, down the busy road. He takes us and she meets halfway. So, I mean, we weren't even that far. We were like a block away at this time. Yeah. Or almost two blocks. And so she meets us. So, yeah, that was, that was pretty scary. That's very scary. I mean, if that house hadn't been there, if we hadn't, like, I don't even know what was going through my mind, but yeah, I just remember Good being pretty scared. You were in the right, like, you knew what to do, you know? Yeah, but I'm just glad that I walked with her that day. Yeah. Well, oh, she could have walked alone. What? Yeah. Well, I don't know if grandma would ever let, let her walk alone, but I just remember being pretty resentful, having to, like, take my day my summer day and walk her to her violin class sit there and wait for her and then walk her back and but then afterwards you're like well knowing my sister yeah so after that i didn't feel any resentment i was like i was glad i had been there so that there was that did you ever have any experiences as a kid any weird experiences i do remember uh when we lived at the uh what the townhouse apartments Uh uh-huh which one where was that that was like right off of 35th and dunlap yeah um i mean it wasn't i don't know I just remember you being real freaked out about it. I, I mean, as a kid, you don't even think about it. You know, you're just you're you're gullible. You know, you you think everyone's there to help or whatever. 
when we lived there, I was playing out front. I don't think anyone was watching us because, you know, we just went to the playground. We would hang out around the apartments. And uh, I believe he was uh, like an African guy because he was real dark and he had an accent. And he walked up and asked me if I wanted like the like a toy elephant. And I was just being a kid. I was like, oh, yeah, OK. And then I mean, that was pretty much it. Right. There, there was nothing more to it. But then I remember you asking me, and I'm sure just from your own experiences, you know, it freaked you out. You're like, where did you get this? And I was like, some guy gave it to me. Just like, and you were just like, you know, don't ever accept things from strangers. And <laughs> yell at me. And I, that's when I learned my lesson about stranger danger and everything. But you were being safe, you know, because you never know what kind of people. Isaiah gave us quite a scare. How so? Um, this was... During that time, uh, we were in a different townhouse at the time, and I just remember, like, I was in the kitchen cooking, your dad was upstairs watching TV, um, your Theo was staying with us, and I think Chastity was there as well, uh, Theo's girlfriend at the time, the boy's mom, and uh, all of us thought somebody else was watching you guys. Yeah. So, Isaiah climbed up on the, like, the top stair that he could reach the lock and he undid the latch yeah which he had done a couple times before and he walked out of the house walked down the street yeah and we didn't live in the greatest of neighborhoods at that point yeah so um you know i was like where's isaiah couldn't find him running the streets (laughs) (laughs) and honestly like i think he was like three or four yeah he was four and so called the police everything and, like, we're running the neighborhood, like, yelling his name, you know, screaming and yelling and whatever. And um, we found him. And he had walked into a neighbor's yard, seen another kid playing and wanted to play with that kid. And that was that. Yeah. But it was enough to put the freaking... The fear into you. The fear in me. And... I just remember the cops coming to the door and there was good cop, bad cop. And one of the cop was like super understanding. He's like, you know, just make sure you lock your doors. I'm like, the door was locked. Yeah. And the other one was the, why aren't if, you watching? If, if anybody, my son, he was always into unlocking things, turning things on and off. He was just a very, 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 like he paid attention to everything. He, yeah. When I got my ultrasound with my daughter, he like turned off the ultrasound machine like he was just like always like he had to Fidgeting be pushing buttons. Yeah, he always had to be pushing buttons. He had to always be like turning things on and off. And he was really good astute with locks. Um, he had figured out all of our electronics, including the video games, at a very young age. So, and he's still the same to this day. Like he's very, very handy that yeah. way. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, yeah. So good cop, bad cop. Getting back to that, one of that one of the cops was very understanding the other cop was like why aren't uh, you watching him like that kind of yeah kind of that and he was like um i don't believe you that the door was locked that the thing was locked he's like i i don't think a four-year-old could unlock a a lock blah 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 i'm like obviously you don't have a four-year-old yeah uh so yeah it made me feel pretty pretty small yeah but you know like i said at least those two things between me and him didn't turn you into, like, one of those helicopter parents that's just constantly, like, watching their children, every little thing that they do. Thank you. I feel like I was, kind of. I mean, to some degree. <laughs> but you weren't there, like, 
every step of the way making sure that I wasn't doing something I wasn't supposed to be doing. But at the same time, you can't blame these parents for being helicopter parents in light of like what we were just talking about. Because there are these people out there and you just can't turn your back on your kids. Mm -hmm. It's scary. Yeah. So, well, that was my story. Um, Here I am uh, reformatting a little, um, going back to the drawing board, trying to figure out what I'm doing with the show now that Vet's not here full time as my co-host. So thank you, Mario. No problem, Mom. uh, For helping me out today. I do this because I love you and I I genuinely enjoy this. Like I said, I literally recorded a whole show and I was kind of like, well, I mean, it didn't sound so bad, but just listening to yourself, talk to yourself for like... 45 minutes isn't the greatest so yeah. <laughs> i do appreciate you coming in and just like jumping in and help me out Bye, mama. love you kiddo love you mom uh thank you guys for listening um uh, we are on instagram we are on facebook um we are on twitter so come find us you know if you want to discuss this episode more or any of the other episodes feel free to hit us up um and we also are at tipsy underscore tales at yahoo.com anyways thanks you thank you guys for listening tonight thank you mario no problem next week you and i are actually going to do an episode we talked about this yeah so we haven't decided who's going to do the paranormal and who's going to do the murder 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 or true crime it doesn't have to be murder i might do the true crime again oh you know what i like the supernatural okay Alrighty then. Okay. Well, until next time, guys, that's it for tonight. Thanks for listening. Thank you, guys. You guys have a good night. Good night. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of Tipsy Tales. Music by Jesse Pesqueda. Artwork by Sergio Hernandez. And if you're listening on iTunes, please don't forget to rate and review. Thanks. Thanks.